The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hi, good morning. My name is Webb Yons. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Pres, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture this morning. Uh, this morning's reading is from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 16 through 24. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Thank you, Webb, for that exceptionally long and rich and fruitful reading of Scripture. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, That includes those of you in the room. Uh, It also includes those of you who are joining us remotely, especially those of you who are uh, wrapping up your spring break. Uh, We look forward also to having you uh, with us next week and weeks after that. So so this week, um, I am especially excited, especially giddy, 
and happy. Uh, if you see me in the hallway that way, it's because my oldest daughter is getting married this week to a guy I really, really, really like, um, which is, which is uh, something very exciting for us. Um, and uh, I want to ask you to pray because after this wedding is going to come a marriage. Uh, so I uh, would love for you to pray for Jeff and Abby. Uh, but today, uh, and right now, uh, specifically, we're going to talk about Jesus and the intellectual. Uh, this is one of my favorite encounters in all the Bible, Paul with a group called the Areopagus. It's a group of, of Ivy League-like scholars in the heart or epicenter of, of uh, the cultural and intellectual capital of the world at that time, Athens, Greece. So, I'll start this way, though. The Bible sometimes catches us off guard uh, when people that we expect to be calm and composed uh, get provoked. And in getting provoked, they get worked up, and they do things that, that appear like maybe they're even lashing out. We see this in Jesus uh, in the temple when He notices that there are certain people that are trying to make personal profit off of the worship of God in the temple, uh, Jesus gets very upset, and He actually takes a table like the one in front of me and flips it over in front of everybody and, and, and starts yelling about things. That's Jesus. Uh, he also gets very upset, we're told, at the tomb of His good friend Lazarus, who's died an early death. It says that He weeps there, but He also gets really angry, and He's angry at death, and He lets it show. Another person that gets provoked is John the Baptist. Uh, you may be familiar with one of the passages about John the Baptist preaching to people in the desert, and uh, he's one of those fiery preachers, and he's stirred up. He's so provoked that he starts calling crowds of people a brood of vipers and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here we've got a picture of another person that we don't expect to get provoked, who gets provoked. And it's the man, Paul the, Apostles, the, the Apostle. This word provoked that, that's in the text here, it, it means disturbed, grieved, upset, and especially angry. He's angry. Not with uh, an out-of-control, uh, raging sort of anger, uh, but what you could call a righteous anger. The Bible actually tells us that there is a certain type of occasion when we are morally obligated to get angry. It commands, the Bible does in, in the Psalms and also in the book of Ephesians, to be angry and sin not. To be angry and sin not. Another place in Romans, it says to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so there's all this provocative, emotive language that, that essentially uh, pictures Christians getting triggered by stuff. And if we ever wonder why we don't ever walk into a room or an environment and start speaking things that might actually make us unpopular with some people, that might represent taking some risks… It might be because of what uh, the late Anglican minister John Stott said. He said, we do not speak 
as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. And what Paul felt was the emotions of God as he walked into this city that he became very concerned with immediately, not with a raging anger that attacks people, but with a righteous anger that attacks problems so that people can be won over to a healing path. That's what this, this text is all about. And so, so his zeal, Paul's zeal, is for the Athenians' welfare, and he's even more zealous for their welfare than he is for his reputation. And again, Athens is the intellectual and cultural and artistic capital of the Greek world, and there's a problem there that Paul notices that, that others don't seem to be noticing, and it's this problem the Bible talks about called idolatry, taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Uh, so, so what I want to do is unpack Paul's experience here uh, under four categories. He sees with God's eyes, he hears with God's ears, he speaks God's truth, and he embodies God's grace. And so let's, let's, uh, let's run through those together. Seeing with God's eyes. See, average person in Athens, Greece, is going to think about their city a lot like an American millennial will think about Nashville, Tennessee right now. It's an awesome place. It's an epic place. It's the place to be because it's got all of this magnificent stuff happening in, in, in the world of arts, in the world of philosophy, in, in the world of academia. Athens had all of these things going on as well. Athens was a place, a lot like Nashville, that exports influence all the time. And they've been, doing the, they've been doing so for about 500 years. It's first a city of beauty and a city of rich culture. For five centuries prior to this, this episode, prior to this conversation that Paul is having with these Athenian intellectuals, five centuries prior, there was this golden age, they called it, of creativity. And, and Athens became this hub or this epicenter for the arts, for entertainment, for creativity. Uh, some, some of the world's, even today, most celebrated literature came out of ancient Athens. Classic plays, famous sculptures and paintings, uh, and you could go on and on. But Athens was especially known for its architecture. There's a large stadium. There's a large theater there. Uh, where the performing arts took place, and notably there were countless temples and statues to the various gods that were fashioned by human imagination, made to resemble some aspect of God's creation. And so, the average person who either lived in Athens or was visiting Athens or was consuming the cultural goods of Athens would think and feel this way. It can't be wrong because it looks and feels so right. It can't be wrong because it looks and it feels so right. But what Paul saw, and he uniquely saw this, it appears that at least at the beginning, he was the only one who saw this. He saw a city smothered with counterfeits. As Eugene Peterson put it, Paul saw a junkyard of idols. And you've heard that phrase, one person's trash 
is another person's treasure. You've got this, this whole city of people treasuring their history, treasuring their, their artifacts, treasuring you know, their symbols. And, and, and Paul is, is, is looking at the art, and he's very impressed by it. He even memorizes some of their poetry, as we see here, and he even memorize, has, has memorized some of their philosophy. It, it, it's not the creativity. It's not the beauty. It's not, it's not the, the intellectual emphasis that Paul is grieved by. What he's grieved by is what the people in Athens think it represents, and that is an intellectual and an emotional and a spiritual free-for-all where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and everybody decides what God is like for them, and what truth is for them, and what beauty is for them. And every, nobody's ideas are, are, are seen or regarded or judged as being superior to anyone else's. It's sort of an equal playing field, a very egalitarian spiritual existence. And to, to commemorate that way of thinking and that way of believing, they have this, this monument right in the middle dedicated to what they call an unknown God. And so, their treasure, this idea of an unknown God, is actually like a junkyard in Paul's perspective. You know, one philosopher put it this way, that it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man in Athens, Greece. Can something beautiful be harmful? That's a really important question. Can something beautiful be harmful? And the, the answer to that question is given at the very beginning of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, where it says that the serpent enticed the man and the woman to crave the tree that had on it forbidden fruit. This was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says in Genesis 3, chapter 6, that this tree was a delight to the eyes. It was beautiful. It was lovely. In the same way that, that Narnia's, you know, the white witch of Narnia offered Turkish delight that was delicious, or, or the ring of power was, was, was so compellingly wonderful and beautiful to Gollum, and it eventually ruined him, just completely stripped him of his, his hobbitness. You know, 2 Corinthians 11, this same guy, the Apostle Paul, says that Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the accuser, masquerades as an angel of light. He makes himself look beautiful. He disguises himself as someone wonderful. He's skilled at creating and presenting enticing counterfeits. But Paul is not tricked. He sees everything as it is. And so he says the things that he says because he feels the things that God feels. He's provoked. So, seeing with God's eyes, but we also see a man in Paul who is hearing with God's ears. So, um, safe place, church is a safe place to confess anything. Who still watches American Idol? Raise your hand. Anyone? Okay. Like two people and me. I think American Idol is still the greatest show of all time. I love American Idol, 20 years into it. I, I like it even more than I did in year one. A lot of people live in this city because they started their careers out on American Idol, so don't, don't diss it too much. But I was watching it last week, and uh, there, was, there was one of these, these guys up there doing his audition, and he was actually a really good singer, 
But you could see the, the, the three you know, judges, all of whom are professional musicians, are, are sort of wincing. And then, and then a couple of them at the same time say, stop and tune your guitar, man. Tune your guitar. Like, they couldn't listen to it because they sensed that was, something was out of tune. A lot of, there, there are a lot of professional musicians in here, right? Uh, a lot of professional musicians in the city, you know this. If one string is just slightly out of tune on a six-string guitar, you will not be able to enjoy the song, especially with your well-trained ears, especially with your ability to spot a true, you know, G chord or, or, or B minor chord or something that, that is just trying to be that but is not because something is out of tune. Paul is discerning. His earlids, as Nate Tasker, I love that word that Nate Tasker has given us, his earlids are discerning things about life and death things that are out of tune among people who think they're singing in tune with all of their brilliance and philosophy and creativity without God, without a known God at least. And so before venturing out as, you know, this messenger of the truth of God and of the truth of Christ, the Apostle Paul actually spent 14 years learning how to discern and how to hear and how to see in the way that God does. And so he also has an emotional reaction when he senses something is out of tune with the truth, out of tune with the beauty, out of tune with the justice, out of tune with the loveliness of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. It all boils down to those realities. That's what the meaning of the universe flows from and points to, that Jesus is the one true and living God, and that He rose from the dead. Those two things. And neither of those two things can be found in the imagination of the God-seekers in Athens. And so, Paul is provoked. I want these people to understand what it sounds like and feels like and thinks like to be in tune with the universe, to be in tune with the one who created them and loved him and gave them and gave himself for them. And so Paul interprets everything in light of these two things, that Christ is the one true living God and then he rose from the dead. And yet Athens here is a city that's filled with alternative ideas. It's not just a creative epicenter, it's also an academic and philosophical and intellectual uh, epicenter. And, you know, by this time, Athens has already produced two widely known philosophers that, that are still widely read today, Socrates and Plato. They both, they both came out of Athens and Greek culture. And here Paul's talking with the Areopagus, which is essentially a collective of, of Ivy League professors. That's essentially who he's talking to at, at this point in time. And he's discovering that these people think very highly of their own thinking. And it says here, uh, to prove that in verse 21, that all of them spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I think Andrew Peterson, though, has better wisdom in the song that he wrote for his son, where he says to his son in, in this beautiful song, 
stick to the old roads and you'll find your way back home. But here, all they want to do is hear something new, something novel, something that nobody's ever said or thought before, whereas Andrew Peterson, the Apostle Paul, say, "Uh uh-uh, don't go forward with something new. Go back to what's been established, to what's been revealed, to that which is anchored through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the one true living God. But this climate, and this is a hard climate to overcome, it's a climate of religious pluralism, and it's very enticing to those who are committed to project self. Because, you know, a a climate of religious pluralism really does feed the notion of project self. You can believe anything you want to believe. You can define God any way you want to define God. You can define truth any way that, that suits you. Project self. You become the authority on all of these things. The, the only absolute truth is that there's no such thing as absolute truth, hence an altar that we all bow down to, to an unknown God. As long as He's unknown, we can believe whatever the hell we want and live however the hell we want and treat people however the hell we want and knock our bottles down however the heck we want. I mean, I'm, I'm using provocative language here because Christians should be provoked by this stuff. That's where this stuff comes from. It does not come from a good place. The notion that you have your truth and I have my truth and neither of us is wrong, neither of us… You, I, can't, I can't challenge your truth any more than you can challenge my truth. It's kind of absurd. What if your kids said that to you? Truly, what if the people who worked for you said that to you? It doesn't work. It doesn't work in a lot of ways, which is why Paul is provoked. This is why Paul spoke as he spoke, because he felt as God felt. So, having an open mind, it's a really great thing to a point. Chesterton put it right. He said this, an open mind is a good thing in the same way that an open mouth is a good thing, but its purpose is the same to eventually shut it on something solid. And that's where Paul is trying to take these open-minded, endlessly open-minded academics. You know, There's this battle that's going on here between intelligence and wisdom. You can can be an educated fool, and you can be an uneducated sage. And then 119th Psalm says, I've become wiser than all of my teachers because I've hidden the Word of God in my heart. I've hidden the truth that comes from the source Himself in my heart, and so I've become more wise than my teachers. You know, Jesus put it this way, if you want to know how to inherit the kingdom of God, if you want to know how to see things the way they really are, look to the little children. Look to them. Hearing with God's ears provokes Him. He speaks with God's truth in response. You know, the God who made everything does not live in temples made by man. Just think about that. A whole city full of cultural and and academic elites being told, 
all of your temples, God doesn't live in them. They're empty. They're empty. How would you feel? Maybe somebody, some of you have had this said to you. Somebody looks to you and says, your whole life's work is worthless. Everything that you've committed yourself to for the last 40 years, worthless. Useless. You've, you've gotten it all wrong this whole time. It's insulting. It feels insulting. But he goes on, and he says, we ought not to think. Here, Remember, he's, he's, he's addressing the elite academics, and he's saying, you're thinking wrong. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold, silver, stone, or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Art and imagination are great things as long as they're, they're, they're anchored into a true source. But as soon as you, you disanchor them from the true source, the art and imagination of man are like a wildfire. They're going to be more destructive than they are constructive, more fruitless than they are fruitful. And he, he says, this God that I'm talking about, He commands that everyone repents, not that everyone defines themselves, not that everyone determines their own truth and decides what God is like for them, but He demands everybody repent. He's not there to, to be sort of fashioned and edited and revised. He's, he's there to fashion and edit and form and revise you. These are hard words, but they're important words because He's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world instead of letting you be you. And so, every Christian is at risk here of falling into one of two extremes. We can look at a pastor like this and say, yeah, I'm going to be one of those truth-tellers now. Time to be a prophet, time to drop the hammer on people that I know have got it wrong. That's getting it wrong. A jerk for Jesus is not for Jesus. You know, that's what you could say, call kind of the all-truth, no-grace form of spiritual drunkenness. But then there's also, on the flip side, the all-grace, no-truth posture. But here's the thing, if, if you're all truth and no grace, you also lose the truth. If you're all grace and no truth, you also lose grace. They have, to come to, they have to come together. They have to dance together, and they do with Paul, which I'll demonstrate in a minute. But when the welfare of people's souls is at stake, what Paul is demonstrating here is that silence can be a form of cruelty. And, and, and speaking the hard things that, that may actually diminish your popularity can be the kindest, most loving thing. I mean, could you, be, you imagine a, a doctor who, who finds a, a malignant tumor in somebody's armpit and says, oh, no, it's no big deal. It's just a cyst. When the doctor knows full well that, 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 that it's, it could kill the person, but he wants to avoid or she wants to avoid the awkward conversation. So take, take that which is biological and temporary and apply it to that which is spiritual and everlasting. And you start to understand why Paul is provoked here. He speaks what he speaks because he feels what God's, God feels. So what does God feel? When people meander off into false worship, he feels jealous, not in the petty, insecure sort of way. He's not jealous of anybody. He is jealous for. 
these dear people. And so verse 27 talks about how the Athenians are groping for meaning. Okay, so do you guys remember Homer? Not Homer Simpson, but Homer the philosopher who wrote about this creature called the Cyclops. You know, the Cyclops is this one-eyed creature, and somebody pokes the Cyclops, and it's one eye, and he can't see anything, and he says he's groping around. Well, Paul brilliantly draws on that imagery and says, you all are groping. You're groping like the Cyclops. You don't know where you're going. You're, you're just trying to find your way around with your altar to an unknown God. There are ways to be blind, even if you have 20-20 vision, just as there are ways to see so abundantly clearly if you can't see at all with your physical eyes. So we had a musician uh, play uh, Amazing Grace here a couple years ago. This is one of my favorite moments here at Christ Prez. He's got a sense of humor, okay, but he's born blind, so he can't see a thing with his eyes. And, and, and he's playing at the piano, and he starts singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. We're all tracking. Uh, you know, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and I still am. And I thought, that's a brilliant, brilliant take on what it means to be a Christian. We will never fully see until we're completely home. But what we want to do is to become less of a groper and, and, and more of a visionary uh, over time as we learn, as Paul did over the course of many years, to learn to see and feel as God did. You know, St. Augustine said that, you know, God has made us for Himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. And so, so Paul is coming here to these Athenians with a supreme gift. If they're like the Cyclops, if, they, if they've got like one eye and that eye has been, you know, poked, and they're groping around, the, the kindest thing that somebody like Paul can do is to take the gropers by the hand and lead them to, to healthy, life-giving, flourishing, healing places that they may someday somehow see. You know, I heard a story. Uh, this was my pastor from Memphis. Uh, his name is George Robertson, and um, he's a wonderful guy. Um, he told a story once about a 19-year-old woman in college. And as college students do, she and a group of friends were, were watching a movie. And it was a movie that was filled with um, quite, a, quite a few gratuitous bedroom scenes. And this 19-year-old this woman who was a Christian started to feel a bit provoked in her spirit. And she quietly left the room, grabbed her Bible, brought it back to her group of friends, some of them Christians, some of them not. She says, excuse me, you guys, do you mind if we just hit pause for a second? I, 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 I feel this weight in my heart, and I know not all of you are going to be on board with what I'm about to read, but I just feel like I've got to read it. And then, you know, no judgment here. You know, she, she approached it in a very kind way. And so they hit pause, she opens her Bible, and she starts reading these words from Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think about these things. 
The students, I'd love to ask you, you know, don't you admire that on some level? Isn't that the kind of person we all on some level want to be like? The person who in certain instances actually decides to stand alone because it's the right and beautiful thing to do in hopes of, of, of helping those along who might be groping a little bit, or, or maybe even fellow Christians who've lost their way a little bit, or maybe even a lot. You know, like the Apostle Paul, this, this woman was willing to risk being mocked in hopes that she could at least lead a handful of people in the direction of health. You realize that there were only two people named here that responded to Paul's message? You know, one woman and one Areopagus member and a few other people, but most people just mocked him. Then he went on to the next town and got mocked again and, and won a handful of people over again, and the cycle just continues. I mean, that's who we want to be, right? We want to be, we want to be people who are willing to stand alone for what's right rather than blend into the crowd for that which will lead to unhealth, right? That's who we want to be, right? This is why conversion is such a deeply held value for Christians. Now, I know that every Sunday there, there are people here who are still trying to figure out whether or not they want to buy into Christianity I want you to know something. I want to convert you. I want to convert you. And, and I want to also be the kind of person, and I hope the church community is filled with the kinds of people who are willing to put themselves at social risk with you just by telling you what Christ has meant to them and why they believe that Christ is who He says he is. It's the greatest gift that a Christian can give to anyone, including fellow Christians who've lost their way. I want to convert people who aren't Christians to being Christians because I think it's the most wonderful thing to live close to Christ. But I also want to convert Christians to holiness. I want to convert Christians out of you know, looking like everything and everyone else around you because you're so afraid of being different and unique and, and standing out. You know that Jesus says He wants His people to stand out like a city on a hill, like light in the darkness. Don't let your light hide under a bushel. Let it shine. That's the language of beauty, you guys. And, and, and somewhere along the way, we become like this brilliant world-class artist who is afraid to share her songs with anyone because they're different. And, and it's just the, fa it's the fact that those songs are different that make them such a wonderful life-giving contribution to the world. You understand that your uniqueness in Christ is the most beautiful thing that there is to offer to somebody who has not yet met Christ or somebody who has forgotten Christ. That's why conversion matters. And he embodies God's grace, and I'll, I'll lead us to the Lord's table with this. There's a ton of truth-telling here, but I, I want us to understand that, that there's not a shred of shaming or scolding that's coming out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Did you guys notice how he starts the conversation? 
It says his heart is provoked. He's, he's, he's jealous for them. He's feeling angry because of what, what, what a, 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 um, you know, a, a, an untrue path is going to do to them. He's provoked, but he starts the conversation not by wagging any fingers, not by putting anybody down, not by scolding anybody. He says, men of Athens, I perceive, I see it, you're very religious. Way to go, man! You're seeking truth and beauty and meaning and the purpose of life. You've refused to numb yourselves. That's a great thing. And then he goes on and says, as some of your own poets have said, I care so much about you that I've studied you. I've studied what makes you tick. I've read your literature. I've exposed myself to the original source material. I'm not reading what Christians are writing about your secular thinkers. I'm reading your secular thinkers. And here's a couple of good things I've found. He quotes their own poets. And then he starts telling them the truth. He's always building bridges. He's always, as he says, becoming all things to all people that I might possibly convert some. It's extremely rare, isn't it, that people are drawn to Christ because Christians have dropped the hammer on them, the hammer of scolding and shaming. How many people do we know? I'm sure those people exist. I don't meet a lot of them. I love what Madeline Lingle says in, in her book, uh, uh, Walking on Water. It's her reflections on faith and art. She says this. She says, here's how people are drawn to Christ. She says, we draw people to Christ not by shouting them down, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they cannot help but ask the source of it. And that's what happens here, you guys. This is the beginning of a process. They say, look, we want to invite you back. We want to hear more about these things. We need to hear more. And, it, you know, sometimes that's a win, right? You don't need to, like, close the deal on, a, on, on any sort of persuasive conversation. Sometimes you just got to keep the conversation alive. And that's what faithfulness looks like. But what's so lovely here is that when you come to Christ, He also treats you with dignity, especially adulterers, which all idolatry is identified as adultery in the Bible. But think about how He treated a literal adulterer. In John chapter 8, woman caught in the act of adultery, and his first words to her were, I do not condemn you. So now that we've established that, let's talk about sin. And, and, and sin is just a code word for unhealth, for that which will diminish you instead of lifting you up, for that which will ultimately destroy you instead of sustaining you. So leave that which will destroy you for that which will give you life and abundance and peace and joy and, 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 and flourishing and everlasting certainty. And that's exactly what this table of grace in front of us does, is it, it invites us to consider the words, He does not condemn us. Why? Because He was already condemned 
in our place. That's what the, the body and the blood, the bread and the cup mean, that Christ bore the punishment that we deserved so that we would receive the blessing and the honor and, and, and the sonship and daughterhood that belongs to Him. And so now we get to come to a family feast, knowing that we are not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what better reason, what better motivation, what better incentive could there be to pursue a life of flourishing by leaving a life of sin? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for bold, bold truth-tellers like the Apostle Paul, who loved people enough to not remain silent, but who also loved people enough to love them and to love them very well as He spoke. Father, teach us as You taught Him to see with Your eyes and to hear with Your ears and to speak with Your truth and to embody Your grace in the way that we treat people inside of Your family and, and, and the way that we treat people uh, who uh, are not sure they want to be part of Your family. And forgive us, Father, for the ways that we tempt people to not want to be part of Your family by living inconsistently with who You are. Lord, it is Your kindness that leads people, including us, to repentance. And so, Lord, we thank You for Your kindness today, especially as, it is, as expressed in Your death and then in Your burial and Your resurrection and now in this supper that we get to receive to be strengthened to live the life You've called us to live. And so, set these elements apart, we pray, and remind us, Lord, that You love those who have been unfaithful. And You say to them, even as Hosea said to his wayward wife, Gomer, I will betroth you to myself forever. Ever. And You say that to us, not only in our best moments, but also in our worst. And for that, we thank You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.